2: There are just too many distortions everywhere we look. We don't have good comparisons, so we don't know what works and what doesn't. When I was writing my speech for this past weekend CBC Investing Club annual meeting, I wanted to compare how companies were doing versus previous years. But nothing's working because the comparisons, they just don't fit. Nothing makes sense. And that's causing tremendous havoc in the market. Although today we did get a nice reprieve, with the Dow gaining 72 points, S&P advancing 0.31 percent, Nasdaq climbing 0.63 percent. I do not know how long it will last. The discrepancies at this moment are just too difficult to fathom. Let me give you some examples of what we're up against because they offer a real glimpse into the contrary nature of this market and why we worry about what the Fed's worrying about. Notice, we worry about what the Fed's worrying about every darn day. Notice, uh, we aren't concerned about what the Fed's going to do so much as we're perplexed by what the Fed sees and what it doesn't see because it's so hard to tell with so many of the distortions about to go over with you out there. Now, let's start with them the most top of mind. I want to start with the one-year anniversary of a truly catastrophic distortion. Mother Russia's bid to restore the territory of the old Soviet Union, maybe even the old Russian Empire. It's almost unfathomable that Vladimir Putin could really start a massive conventional land war to take over Ukraine. They were supposed to be extinct. The economic distortions from this war and the resulting sanctions are humongous. While the Federal Reserve can't do anything but the food or energy disruptions, they must be worried about what those disruptions mean for inflation for you and for me and our pocketbooks. For example, when Russia invaded Ukraine, 13 percent of the world's calorie production got taken off the table. And suddenly Russia's couldn't sell its voluminous oil supplies to Western buyers. So it jacked up food and energy prices. That inflation filtered through the system, even though it's an artificial distortion. Then President Biden unleashed a huge amount of crude for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, forcing oil back down to the low 70s. Another distortion. If you want to figure out the real value of the most important commodity in the world, what it would be worth in a basically functional global economy, right now we have no idea. Is it 150? Is it 50? You know the Fed is worried about the former or anything close to it, despite having no control over it. Why don't they say it? They have no control over it. When Russia went to war, wheat spiked because Ukraine is the breadbasket basket of Europe. Do you know, though, in the last few weeks we learned Russia's got a bumper crop of wheat? Now wheat's price is plummeting. Does that mean the price in the supermarket will fall soon, too? Who knows? The wheat market is totally distorted, and the reverberations are a nightmare for anyone who's concerned about inflation when it comes to foodstuff. Of course, not all distortions are purely negative. We've never in history had an economic slowdown where auto demand was up, way up. Yet that's what we have right now. Some of that's because semiconductor supply chain issues cause a multi-year car shortage, creating a massive backlog of demand. Right now, the demand for cars is so high that steel makers can raise prices sky high. They raised them again today. What's the Fed supposed to do with that kind of distortion? Can't build steel mills. Making things even more tricky, the big auto companies are ramping up electric vehicle production instead of meeting the insatiable demand for regular trucks. They spend fortunes churning out electric versions of the same models. That alone has kept prices high for cars and trucks from the regular internal combustion engine. It's never happened before. Ever. Total distortion. And of course, there's the hangover from multiple years of federal giveaways. Stimulus checks, souped up child tax credit, and 10 grand in student loan forgiveness, although that's currently being challenged in court. I am extremely sympathetic to student borrowers because higher education has gotten insanely expensive. You see it? It's going to cost 100 Gs a year. But this represents a massive infusion of cash into the system, and that is inflationary. For me, the tragedy of Biden's agenda is that this stuff would have been great if they'd done it back in 2009, when Biden was Obama's vice president, and we had the worst economy since the Great Depression. But now the problem is inflation, not deflation. And that demands a different set of solutions that seem to evade this administration's can. Next distortion, housing. Normally, housing is the most hostage to the Fed, correct? But now the Fed raises short rates dramatically, yet somehow mortgage rates don't go up nearly as much as you'd expect. Mortgage rates are supposed to go up initially with the long rate, and then the projections are that they'll go even higher. But then what happened is, Bond buyers came in and picked up 10-year paper at what I regard as absurdly low levels because they're betting on a recession. That pushes mortgage rates back down, and housing demand made a huge comeback as this happened in a totally wacky January while the Fed's tightening like mad. That's not supposed to happen. Discrepancy, discrepancy. As long as housing prices are going up, how the heck can the Fed not keep tightening? Well, if there's demand, say, for 5 million more homes courtesy of millennials, starting with families, than the, Fed, than the housing companies can make, well, the Fed has to take interest rates to ruinous levels to really slow down that. The distortion in housing is even larger than the distortion in autos. You just can't gain the price of housing anymore. You can't do it because investors seem unable to stay away from the meager yield they get from 10-year treasuries. It's irrational. A bunch of delusional, self-absorbed investors have been getting slaughtered in the 10 years. Rates go up and prices go down, and it's going to continue to happen. If they walked away, we'd actually get an honest price for where the 10-year would be, and that would actually help combat inflation. I think the Fed is stunned that so many bond buyers want this paper. How could they expect that? Right now, the Fed's busy selling hundreds of billions of dollars of this kind of treasury, and these buyers don't care. It must be driving the Fed nuts that the bond buyers seem insatiable. It's completely distorted by lunatic buyers who don't know what they're doing. Next, we've got the COVID hangovers. People hunkered down and bought way too much stuff for their homes, especially their home office setups. That drove up the price of everything from furniture to booze to personal computers. So all of these companies ramped up production, thinking it was going to last for a long time. But the shortage in furniture and personal computers turned into a glut in about six months. Why? Because we got a pair of incredible vaccines out of nowhere, meaning people no longer needed to hunker down. At the same time, millions of people decided to retire and go on vacation because life is too short. No tables in history count for this kind of national movement. The vacations, they are insanely expensive, but nobody seems to complain because life is too short. Airline tickets, hotels, no pushback on price. We've never had anyone embrace the you only live once ethos at the same time. Before the pandemic, few people over the age of 30 thought, thought it like this. How long do we have to go? How long will be the rational distortion of YOLO? If you ask the Fed, it won't have a clue. Because they, don't have, they can't figure this out. they're going to get interest rates right if they can't figure out YOLO? I could go on and on. When you add up all the distortions they've made, it's insanely hard to predict consumer behavior, which is why the Fed's moves to date seem to have little impact. We don't know when the distortions will end, but there isn't a single thing I've mentioned that could have been predicted. And almost all of them seem surprisingly immune to the Fed's rate hikes. Given that the balance sheets of most companies are strong and private equity firms seem willing to buy almost anything that's hurting, the Fed can't even cause the kind of bankruptcies that you'd expect after a rapid series of rate hikes. The bottom line, nothing in this economy is working like it's supposed to. Nothing is predictable. And history's a terrible guy right now because we've never been in this situation before. Right now, the Fed keeps trying to win the fight against inflation. But it feels a lot like the little Dutch boy trying to plug a dike full of distortions. And the holes make no sense because this dam should have been busted a long time ago. Let's go to Richard in Oregon. Richard! Richard! Hey, Jim. Love your show. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Thank you. Quick question. Yo, you're welcome. Quick question. I'm debating buying some more Ford to add to my portfolio. Um, I like the dividend and would like to know your thoughts on Ford. Okay, I, I saw Ford Stock acted well today. Uh, Ford, I, I have to tell you, Jim Farley has pretty much guaranteed, he has said it to me, guaranteed that this quarter is going to be the quarter that he does it, that he finally puts the numbers all together. I'm going to bank with Jim Farley, as I do for my Chapel trust, talked about it this weekend at, the, uh, at our annual club meeting, and I'm going to say that you can, too. Jim, your feet are to the fire. Terry in Washington, Terry... Hello, Jim. Uh, Terry, how One question how are you? and one stock opinion. Uh, okay. You always instruct us to do our homework before investing, and I'm doing due diligence on joining the club. But wanted to find out ah. past performance, specifically how it did in 2022, a down year for the averages, and also where can I find a list of the stocks in the trust? And my well, stock Well, you. I'm calling you about. You have to go to the CBC.com Okay.
0: The company All that's in
2: CBC.com. Okay, all of what you just said is in cbc.com. That's where I'll drive you toward. Uh, ASMLF is a very good company. Uh, They make indispensable equipment, the size of a bus, actually, uh, to be able to make it so that you can have great semiconductors, the highest end. And I like the stock. Let's go to Fulnetti in New York. Fulnetti. Jimbo, booyah. Yo, booyah, what's up? I appreciate you taking my call. I'd like to shout out my older brothers, Igor and Boris, for introducing me to your show five years ago and congratulate my baby sister, a student at Vanderbilt University, for getting accepted into Columbia Law School this morning. We thank you very much for sharing your investing wisdom with us. Jim, I'd like to to hear your thoughts about a growth stock that skyrocketed during the pandemic from the 80s to an all-time high of 308 in February of 2021 and then came crashing down in 2021 and all last year. Now in the 20s, and given the recent steam that Gold Sox have gained through the start of the year, and the possible soft landing to the economy, do you think it is a good time to buy Teladoc and hold for the long term? I don't want you to buy Teladoc because they're losing a lot of money. You take a company like Zoom Video, they're starting to make a lot of money, and I like that. If you're losing a lot of money, that's Teladoc, and I don't like it. It's pretty straight, straightforward, that's how I feel nothing in this economy is working like it's supposed to and that's those discrepancies have made it very difficult to fight inflation or oh, may have money tonight should investors spare no expense on investment in bolero i'm learning more about what sent the stock higher after earnings with the ceo then this weekend berkshire hathaway released its annual shareholder letter i don't think it got enough attention there's a lot to unpack I'm revealing what I learned from the letter that I regard as being required reading for any investor. And Tanger Factory Atlas was the top performer in a tough group last year. So what could this year hold? I'm getting the latest from the company's top brass. So stay with Kramer.
3: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question?
2: You can't go wrong with Bolero. That goes for the song, great soundtrack material. And the company, Kramer Fay Bolero, is one of the rare SPAC plays that I've been willing to endorse because it's an old-fashioned SPAC. They raised a pile of money, and they're using that money to gradually consolidate the very fragmented bowling industry. I mean, come on. Turns out bowling's a real good business. Bolero reported its most recent quarter a couple weeks ago. It was across the board beat. The stock jumped in response to the point where it's now up more than 14% for the year, and it deserves to be. So can Bolero keep rolling? Let's take a closer look with Thomas Shannon. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO. For Moore. Mr. Shannon, welcome back to Leo. Mr. Shannon, welcome back to me. But you had to do that. I remember, well, that's because he knows that I always make up a name when I bowl. You never use your real name because you've got to put your funny name up. I'm what? Beethoven.
1: Beethoven. I'm
2: Beethoven. Yes. Always. And Beethoven, I'm... as I was told when I was one of your lanes last time. Mm-hmm. Let's go right to it.
1: Okay. You are a spack that worked. Well, I think we're the number one d of 2021. Um, we're a real company, Jim. I mean, we broke through a billion dollars in revenue in December. That felt really good. We started with a million dollars a year in revenue when I bought uh, the original lanes, and, and now we're a billion. Uh, 353 million of TTM EBITDA. Right. We're firing at all cylinders.
2: OK, you, most people are excited about 2 to 3 to 4% comparable store sales. What are yours? Uh, 30? <laughs> no, okay. So people say that's preposterous. But when you buy the link, a link, and let's just say it's okay, because a lot of them don't look that good. What do you do? Well, we do
1: a full cosmetic refresh. We fix all of the structural deficiencies in the building, air conditioning, lighting, uh, uh, parking lots. We make it so that it's a, a first-class experience from an infrastructural standpoint, and then really just a wonderful aesthetic overlay and a service proposition that you wouldn't expect.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is just a very inexpensive giant birthday party when we throw them and we go to Bolero. Mm -hmm. Uh, You added something I've not seen yet, Moneyball.
1: Moneyball, right. So it's a skill-based app where you can come in and we give you challenges. So the first thing we do is we'll give you $5 to see if you can bowl 100 or more. And then if you do, you get to pick from a series of three challenges. And our algorithm knows how well you've bowled, right? It's proprietary algorithm. And it will give you challenges based on how well we think you do. So maybe uh, bowl three strikes in a game or break 120, whatever it is. The whole point of all of this is to get you to bowl the third game. Our average bowler bowls 2.2 games right. I per I know. Visit. They always
2: want to leave. These two, or they're too drunk. Yeah, I mean, well, my friends. Well, I always say you got to bowl three because the first one's a warm up.
1: That's right. So if we get you to go from two to three, probably we can get a 25% increase in revenue, which would be about a 50% increase in EBITDA. It's a huge incentive for us to get you to stay, and we're going to pay you to do
2: it. All right, now, you also own the Professional Bowling <laughs> Association. For those of us who watch it on TV, you can see that they have like, not unlike when you go to Formula One, I mean, everyone's wearing stuff that they're making money. You share that with the, uh, with the actual bowlers?
1: We do, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of enthusiasm. So we do $100 million a year in league business. We're big proponents of sport bowling, right. um, and we've really tried to reinvigorate that aspect of the business.
2: Now, one I know that actually my whole team knows, the big event in Cherry Hill. That's yes. a huge, huge uh, group of ladies. What will happen when you get in there? What's the first thing you do?
1: Well, I mean, uh, it's a great center. i uh, really excited that we just closed on that. It needs a cosmetic refresh. It's yeah. pretty boring. You know, right. so we're just going to revamp it and make the
2: lights, it lights, the lights make it exciting lights.
1: Well, the lights, the, the whole the whole aesthetic, really audio, right. visual, everything. Right. Yeah.
2: You and know. that's just the playbook. Now, the playbooks could be extended to new ones,
1: new ones, Sure. So we have six leases signed. We're actually under construction. We'll have probably a handful open this year. By the way, we acquired eight bowling centers in the last quarter right. and then big event already this quarter. So between buying and building, I'm shooting for 20 to 30 new centers this year. Is the country under bowls? Well, it is, yeah. So back in the peak in the 70s, there were 12,000 bowling centers. Wow. Right. And the population was half what it is now. So now there are 4,000 bowling centers and double the population. So there's one sixth as many bowling alleys per person as there were in the 70s.
2: Now, when I tried to buy a bowling alley, I saw that there was tremendous money to be made in a revamp. Now, I, and I also realized that if you could have, say, waitresses, if you could have a, a center console drinking, you could crush it. You do all these things, and it is crushing right? <laughs> we, we do it
1: all, yeah. I mean, it, it's really a very high-end experience, believe it or not, and I think what people don't understand is our average customer is probably going to veil. Uh, in the winters, Absolutely. right? It's not what you would think. It's a six-figure household income all day long. And we have bowling centers that we built in the suburbs doing $10 million. That's unheard of in the bowling business.
2: Okay, so I, the stock is up that it's at its high. Um, I saw you sold a lot of stock. Are you did other you know stock?
1: Me, personally? Yeah. I sold about uh, less than 3% of my okay, holdings. good. That's
2: all it is. Good, because yeah. I'm telling people that this thing can go much higher, and you know I don't have any conviction about any other SPAC, and it's not just you have an amazing board, but it also have a be a I love.
1: Well, you were right from the start, and we appreciate well, that.
2: Well, I mean, you know, look, those of us who tried to be in this business know This is a fabulous business, and you have really figured out how to do it. I want to thank Tom Shannon, Valero, founder and CEO. He only sold 3% of his holdings. He's still got plenty behind that, of which I (laughs) hope he doesn't sell, because I think this stock goes to much, much higher. B-O-W-L. That money's back.
3: Coming up, hot off the press, Wall Street's most venerable required reading, Kramer's thoughts on Warren Buffett's latest shareholder letter,
5: next. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
0: Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how VivGart, FGart Tigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot MOA. Brought to you by Argenics.
2: Over the weekend, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway reported its fourth quarter results. It also released its annual shareholder letter, something that's very much awaited on Wall Street. And it's got to be, it's required reading for anyone who manages their own money, not just money managers. As always, Buffett's letter to shareholders is full of humility, optimism and plain spoken homespun wisdom about the market and the individual companies that Berkshire invested in. It gave us a nice boost today like I predicted last week. So before we go back to the daily grind of figuring out where the averages are headed next, I want to give you some highlights because, wow, there is so much to learn from here. First, some context. Last year, while the S&P 500 had a negative 18% return, including dividends, Berkshire Hathaway stock was up 4%. Going back to 1965, Buffett's given you a compounded annual gain of 19.8%. That is slightly more than twice what you've gotten by owning the S&P 500 over the same period. There's a reason he's got such an incredible reputation and, of course, a reason why I've been recommending the stock since the show began. Buffett's annual letter begins with a simple overview of how Berkshire works, with an explanation of how the company has two forms of ownership. They buy entire businesses, uh, like Burlington Northern, which they run themselves, and they also make investments in publicly traded stocks, where they have no say in management. But as Buffett sees it, whether Berkshire buys a company outright or just buys some shares, they're doing the same thing. They're making bets on the long-term prospects of the underlying business. He says he and his partner, Charlie Munger, quote, and I love this, are not stock pickers. We are business pickers, end quote. I don't agree with him on everything. But if you're managing your own portfolio, wow. I mean, that is fabulous attitude. Buffett then goes on to my favorite part of the letter where he talks about his mistakes. Listen to this, quote, Our extensive collection of businesses currently consists of a few enterprises that have truly extraordinary economics, many that enjoy good economic characteristics, and a large group that are marginal. Marginal. You never hear a hedge fund manager talk about their book like that, marginal. In fact, he goes on, quote, in 58 years of Berkshire management, most of my capital allocation decisions have been no better than so-so, end quote. While also noting that he's made it out of some bad investments thanks purely to good luck. This is the guy who is widely hailed as the best investor on earth, the Oracle of Omaha. Rather than knocking out of the park every time, Buffett says his tremendous results come from about a dozen incredibly good decisions. Every five or so years, he makes an investment that's so fantastic, it's more than offsets everything else. Guys, you just don't hear this from anyone. This is just incredible. On top of that, Buffett talks about the, quote, sometimes forgotten, quote advantages of long term investing. And he points to two of his favorite holdings. Coca-Cola and American Express, where Berkshire gradually built large positions through the late 80s and early 90s and then didn't touch them. The total cost of their investments in both games was about $1.3 billion. Since then, both companies have raised their dividends dramatically to the point where Berkshire's gotten $704 million from Coca-Cola last year and another $302 million from American Express. Over a billion in dividends for a pair of positions that only cost them $1.3 billion apiece roughly 30 years ago. That's just the dividends. At the same time, Berkshire's Coca-Cola position was worth $25 billion as of the end of last year. Amex position was worth $22 billion. And it's not like these were unknown companies that came out of nowhere. We all knew them. You knew them back then. They were iconic long before Buffett started buying them hand over fist. So you can see with your plain eyes, do work, and you can find one. Next, Buffett gives you a quick review of Berkshire's operating performance last year with a discussion of their recent insurance acquisition. They bought a company called Allegheny. Then he talks about how Berkshire had some nice gains from buybacks last year, both their own buyback that took out 1.2% of their share count and buybacks of the portfolio companies like Apple, American Express. Buffett makes a pretty fiery defense of buybacks as long as they're done at the right price. He writes, quote, when you are told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders, to the country, or particularly beneficial to CEOs, you are listening to an either economic illiterate or a silver tongued tongue demigod. Silver tongued. Who is he implying here? Is he talking about Senator Warren? Is he talking about President Biden? He doesn't tell us, but it's worth thinking about. And then we get a typical dose of Buffett's optimism about America, what he calls the great American tailwind. The American tailwind is mentioned over and over again. He never bets against America. His that's worked out pretty well for Berkshire shareholders. And Buffett's right. Putting aside the day-to-day headlines, this country's a great place to do business. I always like to say, none better. Finally, before concluding with some remarks about tax policy, in homage to his longtime partner, Charlie Munger, and a preview of the company's annual shareholder meeting, which I have not been to, Buffett gave you a quick update on Berkshire Hathaway's current portfolio. At the end of last year, Berkshire was the largest owner of American Express, Bank of America, Chevron, Coca-Cola, Moody's, Occidental Petroleum, and here's a quizzical one, Paramount Global. They've also got a new position in Apple and own controlling positions in a couple of companies. I mentioned the Burlington Northern, BH Energy, both of which would be members of the S P 500 if they were still independent. Buffett says this constellation of holdings leaves, and I quote, Berkshire more broadly aligned with the country's economic future than is the case at any other U.S. company. I say yes to that. It is hard to disagree with that. Of course, we could nitpick some of Berkshire's individual holdings. I mean, for example, Paramount seems like a second-tier media company and streaming company. Well, Moody's has been range-bound for three years. Should continue to struggle given the debt issuance remains muted. I wish they had bought the company that, that, uh, that uh, rang the opening bell this morning, S&P Global. Uh, not a great time to own the rating agencies, but s Global's done a lot of good things right. You know what? Paramount pays a 4.3% yield, and after Buffett explained how much money he's made from dividends simply by like sitting on Coca Cola and Mercury, especially for decades, maybe there's more to this one than meets the eye? As for Moody's, you got to remember that Buffett's truly a long term investor. He honestly doesn't care about the next year or even the next few years. Berkshire's held Moody's for decades. In the wake of the financial crisis, people were also calling it a mistake. Then the stock rallied from the teens of late 2008 to an all time high north of 400. In late 2021, he did not panic out. And that essentially is the biggest lesson that an individual investors can glean from Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. The benefits of diversification, long-term thinking, and compounding. Looking to the future, Buffett writes, quote, Berkshire will always hold a boatload of cash and U.S. Treasury bills, along with a wide array of businesses. We will also avoid behavior that could result in any uncomfortable cash needs at inconvenient times, including financial panics and unprecedented insurance losses, quote, wow. He concludes this discussion on portfolio strategy with a simple line. At Berkshire, there will be no finish line. Bravo. Now, in all honesty, while you can learn a lot from Warren Buffett's playbook, you can't truly mimic it yourself. Buffett bought a bunch of insurance companies in the 60s and 70s, think Geico. He then uses the premiums to fund his investments. And after roughly 60 years of this, he's got insanely deep pockets. He can afford to ignore the short term. He can afford to buy and hold his favorite stocks forever. He's got license. But if you're a regular person with regular expenses, you can't afford to be that, that patient. Here's the bottom line. As always, the Berkshire Hathaway annual letter is full of tremendous lessons. Do yourself a favor. Spend 15 minutes reading this year's vintage. It will take you no longer than that. Let's go to Paul in Minnesota. Paul. Hey, Jim. I'm a longtime viewer and club member, and I'm very thankful for the wealth and knowledge you and your team. Oh, thank you, Paul. The club, we had a rocking meeting this weekend. I think everyone should join the club. If you're watching the show, join the club. How can I help? Yeah, my question is in regard to Intel. I currently have a loss in Intel, and both AMD and, and uh, NVIDIA are eating their lunch. Intel just cuts its dividend in an effort to right the ship, and while the stock is cheap from a P.E. perspective, is it worth holding on to it at this point, or should I take the loss and move that money to NVIDIA since they appear strongly positioned for continued market leadership? I, I want also, you to, to take which, the money, which, Paul, and split it between the two. And the reason I say that is all you got to do is go read the incredible NVIDIA conference call. Read the part about Intel, and you will understand why I feel this way. Let's go to Lynette in New Mexico. Lynette.
0: Hi, Jim. Uh, yes, this is Lynette. I'm an older, long-term investor, and I really enjoy all the information you give us. A while Thank back, you. you liked tractor supply. It's, it's doing nicely. Do you still like them? and should I buy more? I like
2: Tractor Supply very much. It, Hal Lawton, the CEO, was the number two at Macy's. He was incredible there. I just bought a boatload of stuff because I'm going on a fishing trip. You wouldn't think that, but that's what I need. Tractor Supply has it. Alright, now, I want you to do yourself a favor and spend 15 minutes reading Berkshire Hathaway's annual letter. It is worth it. Now, much more money ahead, including my exclusive with Tanger Factory Outlets. Could a discount retail real estate investment trust hold up against a questionable economic backdrop? I'm getting the latest on the story with the CEO. Then this weekend, we held our first investing club annual meeting in New York, as I mentioned. I had the opportunity to hear from you on what you're watching. I'm sharing what I learned. And all your calls, of course, rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. This has been a horrendous time for retail, especially the last month. Between widespread inventory gluts and worries about a Fed-mandated recession, most of the group has struggled. And that weakness has flowed through to their landlords, the retail real estate investment trust. But not all retail plays are created equal. And in an environment like this one, the most favored are the trade-down names. Take Tanger Factory Outlet Center. This is a REIT that runs dozens of open-air outlet centers where you can find all sorts of off-price merchandise. Their tenants are the cheaper outlet versions of name-brand retailers, but they often have the same stuff. When you're about inventory, glass, and retail, Tanger's atlas are often the final destination for markdown merchandise that couldn't be sold at higher prices elsewhere. There's a reason the stock was only down 7% last year while the most of the retail reach were down double digits, including some higher-end mall and shopping center plays that were down more than 25%. When Tanger reported last Tuesday, they delivered a strong quarter, a nice bottom line beat, 97% occupancy rate, same, uh, same center net operating instrument, NOI, up, 5.1%. Even better, the four-year forecast was pretty encouraging, which is why the stock jumped more than 4% the next day. So much for a sleepy read. Seeing so this thing keep climbing, let's check in, check in with Steven Yaloff. He's the president and CEO of Tanger Factory Outlet Centers to get a better read on the quarter and what comes next. Mr. Yaloff, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks for having me. All right, so this was truly an inspired quarter, and I wonder whether, as we see a lot of markdowns and people uh, having to clear out inventory, I mean, t- Target had to clear out inventory, for instance, whether we won't see even better times beginning, you probably already see it, in January.
5: Well, that's true. You know, a lot of markdown this quarter compared to 21. Not a lot of markdowns in 21. So we see the customers coming back, and they're looking for value. And then, post-Christmas, they're coming back, and they're coming back even faster. So uh, January's been great, and that's bled through into February as well.
2: Wow. Okay, that's very important, because so many people are worried about, about retail. What I found is most interesting, as what will probably be in the case, with their, uh Tennessee store in September, is that there's something to do. When it rains, I go to my tank or factory outlet because it's experiential. Did you create the idea as experiential or just happened to become that?
5: You know, it's, a, it's evolved. And I think COVID had a lot to do with it. Right. So if you think about the old outlet narrative of power shopping, right. you know, putting on your Sergio Ticini track tracksuit, your Pumas going from store to store. And spending an hour, an hour and a half in the shopping center. And now, what we're finding is the customer's looking for a lot more than just power shopping. They're looking for a place to eat. They're looking for a place to be entertained. Right. They're looking for a place to gather. So, what we've evolved Tanger of today into is leaning a little bit more heavily into the experiential right. and creating better amenities, better food and beverage well, offerings. You do that and now. also, yeah. Better, better experiences for the customer when they get there.
2: What will this new Tennessee store look like? Because I mean, it, it is it, from the, the sound of the Nashville development, it's a hundred and fifty million, two hundred ninety thousand square foot development. That's gigantic.
5: So we're building this big shopping center in the south part of uh, Nashville. It's Na- Nashville, as you know, is on on Friday. right. It's a great food scene, great music scene, but now it's an emerging tech scene too. So we're you know shopping centers. You rely very heavily on that tourism, and that's a really important part of our business. But now that permanent population is growing so fast, we'll have places for people to shop every day, and that's why we're responding with better food and beverage, and better, better brands, and obviously uh, elevating the experience for the shoppers.
2: Well, right, talk to me about uh, approximately 10% of your gross leaseable area uh, is from what you would describe as short-term or pop-up stores. Now, that's right. that isn't just Halloween. You've got stores. What they. Uh, companies trying to get rid of inventory or trying to show off the wares? Who does pop up? Well,
5: there's a whole mix. Let's talk about direct-to-consumer brands because sure. they're really feeding the pop-up space right now. A lot of those direct-to-consumer brands, they've done their full bricks-and-mortar installations, and now what they're saying is, hey, we have some excess inventory. Let's try closing it out. Now, they can do so in the big-box closeout stores, but you can't control your pricing. Right. You can't control your product. You can't control your positioning. And all these brands, all they want to do is they want to maintain their brand identity, and there's a good way of diluting brands in, in some of those bigger, larger-scale, larger-format pop-ups. Well, then art. how
2: can we find out about it when our our Tanger outlet has a pop-up. <laughs> well, we do a much better
5: job of marketing than we ever did before. We do a lot of digital marketing. I want to make you part of our Tanger Club. I definitely the want to We'll send you all these, uh, and we're not going to send you emails you don't want to open. Right. We're going to pick the brands you like and make sure we send well, you I emails. Mean, let's talk about Neuronset. the brands I
2: like. For instance, I have a Williams-Sonoma, which I absolutely love in my Tanger. And what's incredible is I'm getting the exact same thing. I bought a, uh, a espresso maker. And the only thing that was wrong with it was that the bottom right corner of the cardboard box was bent. And that made me say $500. I mean, is that what I should be looking for?
5: Well, you know, I think you're going to see a mix of all, all things in our outlet right. centers. And, you know, I, first of all, you're going to, you're going to have that clearance yeah, excess inventory and right. the clearance goods that are going to be there. We also have this aspirational customer that's shopping in an outlet center now. And that customer, a lot of these brands want to reach that customer. Yes get them to buy their products, get to trade them up into so their ecosystem. So started
2: there. Oh, okay, of, so let me just ask you yeah. one last question. When I used to go to these up uh, to shopping centers, I found that it was really kind of the lowest of low end. <laughs> now I see exactly the stores I would like in a high-end mall. I next, live next to the Short Hills Mall, the highest of the high. They're a Tanger. They're not worried about being a Tanger? Well, I think that there's always gonna be a market
5: for their product but there might be a customer that's not comfortable shopping on Madison Avenue. They might have price resistance when they walk in. So this is a great entry for them. An, opera- an opportunity for them to come shop a store. It's aspirational. We get it up, op- we can trade up that customer. Maybe that customer is used to buying one price point but in an outlet center, they may try in, in, in another price point. So that's a, that's an exciting part. It's great for the retailers, too.
2: Well, I urge people to look at this. It's been, long been one of my favorites, and I think that we're all, we all recognize that retail has changed. And Tanger Factory Outlets become integral to all the great retailers in this country. That's Stephen Yell. He's president and CEO of Tanger Factory Outlet, SKT, which we have liked since 2008. <laughs> Stay with Kramer. Thanks
3: Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next.
2: It is time. It's time for the lightning round. Come back to my and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Steve? Time for the lightning round. Start with. Craig in New York, Craig! Thank you for the respect and gratitude that you expressed to us veterans. I have helped Absolutely, sir. Oh, I, I like the Accenture. stuff, Accenture, very much. Ah, bye, bye, bye. I have to tell you the Accenture should come on the show. That's how much I like them. They are a leader in many things, including AI. Let's go to Randy in Pennsylvania, Randy! Yeah, hey
5: Jimmy, long-time listener, and
2: first-time caller. I oh, think, thank uh, you for calling. on
5: Boeing Company? And, and I have and to droplet. admit, that I think, I think,
2: I think Boeing's going to come down a little because of the last thing that was announced. But I do like Boeing. I think that this is, you know, this is their time. If they don't screw it up, let's go to Gina in Florida. Gina, hi, Mr. Kramer, how are you? I am good. Uh, I Gina, am how you doing? I'm also a club member. Um, there we go. on Biogen. Okay, it's very interesting. There was a key person from the FDA who left uh, the FDA, and that was the person who was involved with Biogen getting approval for its Alzheimer's drug. All the Alzheimer's plays then went down, except for Biogen. I think Biogen is in the catbird seat. Didn't think I'd ever say that. Let's go to Rich in New York. Rich. Hi, Jim. Hi, Rich. Uh, With the CEO leaving and the stack getting a nice bump, Um, what should we do with Union Pacific? I think, I think you should accept the fact that the stock is probably going to be like Disney is going to lose a lot of that gain, maybe even as much as 10 points, but then you should pass. Why do I say that? Because Union Pacific is, needs precision railroading. They have not done that. And I think the stock is a great long-term play. I do like Canadian Pacific more. Let's go to Carlos in New York. Carlos. Hey, Jim, how's it going? Not bad I at all. Like How about you? I'm doing great. I would like to know Good. about Meta. What do you think? I think Meta goes higher. I think that Mark Zuckerberg is probably the most determined to be able to make money for shareholders of almost any CEO in the world. He's cutting back expenses. He's now going to cut back cop, uh, operate, uh, not just operational, but capital expenditures. Uh, and he's doing everything he can to right-size the table of employment. Buy, buy, buy. Now we go to Brian in Pennsylvania. Brian... Oh yeah, Jim thanks for taking my call oh yeah, Brian. of course Jim uh, Nokia just rolled out a new corporate logo supposedly to signal that they've gotten some new business strategies I'm 62 years old will Nokia's new business strategies raise the stock price over ten dollars in my lifetime um, I have to, well over 10 I said I hope you lived a hundred and different but I have to tell you that Nokia has falling behind everybody else and I don't want you near the stock of Nokia I think it could I just think it's just not good enough for you. Let's go to Tyler in California. Tyler, hey, big we up from California. How are you doing, Jim? I am doing well. How about you? I'm doing good. I'd like to redeem myself on the last pick. I did
5: some research. I'd like to know what you think of, think of a ticker VNT.
2: I don't know I don't, mind. I don't know VNT. I don't know that one. All right, let's go to Jay in California. Jay. Yes. Yes. Oh, hi, Jim. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Jim. Oh, hey, I'm are uh, on the show. There is a, a stock out there that I did some research. It's called Enphase. Enphase, after five years, get this, Jim, it's up 8,943.6% after five Enphase's years. Enphase is the winner. So the numbers and graphs show that statistically Enphase has been the best stock of any stock for the last five years, including Tesla, including NVIDIA. Yep. Yes, On a yes. one-year, yes. three-year, five-year graph, it's Absolutely. the best. I think it's a buy. The stock has fallen horribly from when they reported what I thought was a magnificent quarter, and I agree with you, and I think it should be bought. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round.
3: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, Kramer recaps a special weekend at the inaugural CNBC Investing Club annual meeting. Investors assemble next.
2: Booyah, Jim! I love you, man. I've been watching you from day one. Thank you for all the wonderful advice that you provide us. I'm learning so much watching your show. Watch your program every day. I love it. always wanted to say booyah on your show. Thank you for being the greatest in the world. We consider you the money market maker, and we thank you for all you do.
0: I love your show. I'm a long time fan of your show, and we think it's the most entertaining program on TV.
2: the privilege of Saturday to spend the whole day with CBC Investing Club members. Research Director Jeff Marks and I convened our first annual meeting and people learned a ton about us, including the interview with Carl Quintanilla, which was just incredible. It was about me. We also learned a ton about our members, though. The whole thing's on tape. I highly recommend watching and not just because I love the attention. It's got some very humbling comments and notes about how hard we work to help you to be empowered, help individual investors. And I feel strongly that the Investing Club is of great value as a companion to what we do here. I want to meet you at our next confab. Now, as part of the club convention, we let everyone who wanted to take pictures with me and Jeff Marks do it. Why not? And it was in those moments when the pictures were taken that I really got a sense of what people are interested in. We do a morning meeting and a home stretch every day, two terrific conference calls, and I like to infuse them with what club members are about. So it's always worth finding out, mining that intelligence first. Everyone seemed hungry for anything related to ChatGPT. That was easy. The only good way to invest in artificial intelligence is through the stock of NVIDIA, which makes the software and hardware that enables these programs to take advantage of accelerated computing. That's what powers the neural network learning behind all of this stuff. As I mentioned last week in the most heavily retweeted offering I've made, the AI story is all laid out in NVIDIA's recent quarterly conference call, where CEO Jensen Wong compares it to the rise of the personal computer or the internet or the smartphone app store. Breakthroughs that change everything in our lives. Jensen was a lonely voice calling for mass adoption of AI technology for a long time. It, did, it didn't really get much love until ChatGPT made it popular. Now that he thinks about 150 million people have viewed it just like this, that could be the breakout moment that turns artificial intelligence into an $11 billion opportunity for NVIDIA. That's my number. People want to be in that stock and I don't blame them. There are a lot of skeptics about Fang, The original members, Facebook, now Meta, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Now, Alphabet, we own Meta, Amazon and Google for the trust. I think Amazon's way too hated. Where else can you order fishing pants at 5 p.m. yesterday and have it arrive at 6 a.m. today? Sure, Amazon stock will go higher once they fire tens of thousands of people, but we seem to forget that it's the service that makes it worth owning for the long haul, the service. Nobody wants Alphabet right now because it has way too many enemies, the Justice Department, Microsoft, Apple, you name it. If Alphabet stock weren't so insanely cheap, I think we'd throw in the towel right now for the trust. My order has certainly cooled on this one, though, as I explained to people on Saturday. Plus, all these fang names now have the law of large numbers working against them. Same goes for Apple, unfortunately. There's a similar uh, sense of unlearning we surrounding Salesforce, where I know some of the large activist hedge funds have not been appeased by the recent board changes that Mark Benioff has made, or the firings for that matter. I say give CEO Benioff a little benefit of the doubt, please, after all the wealth he's created. Let him work his darn magic. I know the patience has ill-advisedly worn thin among our audience, though. My ultimate takeaway from the club meeting is that there are still plenty of people out there who want to make fortunes in individual stocks or have already done so, even though people tell them that they can. So many financial experts will tell you it's impossible to make money in individual stocks. They want your money, they want your funds, and they don't even feel compelled to tell you what you're doing wrong. These investors despise that kind of attitude. They bridle at the notion that they can't manage their own money when they've been doing it very successfully for years. That's not eye-opening. It is core to what we do at the club. However, it's always nice to have hundreds of people tell you to keep doing it. Because it's working for them, and that's exactly what I'm going to continue to do. I'd like to say there's always a bull market summer. I promise you i find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow.
0: Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.